Our scripture this morning comes from Mark chapter 9, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 8. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This morning, we're going to revisit uh, the transfiguration. When Jesus brought Peter, James, and John up a high mountain, and there his body went through a change, a metamorphosis, or a transfiguration, to reveal himself to his chosen disciples. There was a brightness to his clothing, and his face shone like the sun. And just like what happened when Moses was on Mount Sinai, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And if you were at the foot of the mountain, and you looked up, You would have seen in the middle of a cloud, it appeared to be a devouring fire, just as it is described in Exodus 24. Now, this is a description of the glory of the Lord. This light or glory is uncreated light. It emanates or originates from Jesus himself. It comes from his divine, uncreated nature, shining through his human created flesh. And this is evidence of fellowship, just like when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Now, there is a difference between Moses and Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the greater prophet. Jesus is the son of God, which means he shares the same nature as God. But not only that, Moses' ministry did not bring life. While Jesus, who is referred to by Paul as the second Adam, became a life-giving spirit, which is describing Jesus' ministry right now. After he was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, it is no longer an earthly ministry like before, but a ministry by the Spirit. As we read in 2 Corinthians 3, uh, verses 7 to 18, uh, Now if the ministry of death carved out in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. 
And we all, through Christ, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, there is a lot going on in that passage. But to summarize, what happened to Moses when his face shone because he was talking to God was temporary. And the law that was given to him could not save. It was indeed a ministry of condemnation and death. And if there was glory in that ministry, never mind the glory that far surpasses what happened to Moses. What Paul is saying is that what happened to Jesus when he revealed to his disciples in the transfiguration was that this glory, this transformation, this transfiguration would be eternal and there would be life. Not death, not condemnation. And this life will not just come and go. This glory that shines forth from the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is what every Christian should look forward to. Because through Jesus Christ, God calls us into that fellowship and into His presence. And in the presence of God, we will experience two things that this passage reveals to us. And that is life and love. Life and love. First, notice who does Peter, James, and John see uh, talking with Jesus? And who do they see in Jesus? First, they see Moses and Elijah. Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets. And before their eyes, they see the one who fulfills the law and the prophets. Before Moses' eyes, his request that he made so long ago when he asked to see God's glory, and he was denied because man could not see God and live, that request has now been granted. God took on our nature in Jesus so that we could see God and live. And Elijah now saw that God was not in the wind, not in the earthquake, and not in the fire. He was revealed in the flesh of Jesus Christ and he was not hearing only a still small voice but he was talking with God and now sees God face to face standing in his glory. And get this, they are standing there alive though they are dead because in the presence of Jesus there is life. He proves here that he is both the Lord of the living and the dead. And all those who have died will one day live in his presence. They are looking at the author of life as Peter calls him. And as John describes Jesus, he describes him in the context of his glory as God. He says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. You can make the argument that much of what was going on uh, through John's mind when he wrote those words was that he was thinking back and remembering the transfiguration as well as the resurrection. And what they saw is what every believer ought to look forward to seeing one day. Why? Because this was an appearance of God, the Holy Trinity, or what we call a theophany. 
we know one of God's attributes is that God is an invisible God. He dwells in unapproachable light. He cannot be seen by the eyes of men. But out of His grace, He makes Himself visible at times. We see this throughout Scripture. And one day, He will make Himself visible once again in Jesus Christ and for all eternity. But here we see this appearance of God. Uh, The Father was speaking from the cloud. The Son was in Jesus, shining through His flesh as He is the image of the invisible God, as it says in Colossians chapter 1. And the Holy Spirit is here taking on visible form. Uh, Throughout Scripture, He takes on a visible form. And multiple times, He is said to overshadow, to descend, to rest, or to hover. We're not sure what the form was in the beginning, but we know He was hovering over the face of the waters. He took on the form of a dove, descending at the baptism of Jesus, and tongues of fire, resting on the disciples during Pentecost. He takes on the form of a bright cloud overshadowing them, similar to the cloud that overshadowed Mount Sinai. Why is this revelation so important? Well, because it corrects our notions about God. This was all to show us that God is not static. He is not at a standstill. He does not exist somewhere out there and never interferes with the affairs of men as some often claim. God did not create the world and now leave it to humans to decide what will happen to his creation. No, in God there is motion, there is life. God is life. He is a living God and he is involved in all of the details of his creation. He is not impersonal. He is a personal and rational being. There is constant and ceaseless communication of life between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three persons of the Trinity exist in a living fellowship. They live in one another and they cannot be separated. Yet they are distinct in their relationship and the major roles that they play. The Father is the transcendent or the preeminent one who drafted up the plan of of salvation. The Son is the sent one to accomplish redemption. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son to seal the redemption of his people to his people. The relationship between the Father and the Son is often referred to as eternal generation. That is why they are named Father and Son, to describe how the Father begets the Son, and the Son is the only begotten of the Father. And the reason why we have life is because God has life within Himself. His original purpose in creating anything was to give life that he has within himself to his creation, especially to man who was made in his image. And all of life and all of creation reflects our God. God is not static. And he knows exactly what you are going through. He is directly involved in all that you think that he has abandoned me. 
God is not static. He is there with you as a personal and relational God who knows what you are going through. And since He knows, He is there to help you. God is life. So when we distort life or treat life as if it has no meaning or try to take life unjustly, it is a direct assault on God. This is why it is considered sin. It is not your life to give or take away unjustly. You hear that oftentimes that people say, well, it's my life. No, it's not. Your life is derived from God. It was given to you. When God breathed the breath of life in Adam, it was God's life that he was breathing into Adam. It's not your life. Just like it's not your body. That body was given to you. And this life begins at conception, not at birth. At conception. And we see today the total disregard for life. In the wars, in the violence done to humanity. It is a direct assault on God, on the character of God. So what? What does that have to do with us? Well, without God, we are dead. And we are heading toward eternal death. We do not have life in ourselves. Like I said, life does not originate with humans. The only reason we have life is because God is life. We come from somewhere and we're going somewhere. We cannot sustain ourselves. There's all this talk about how humans can believe whatever they choose about eternal life. And as long as you believe strongly enough, you will end up wherever you want to be when you die. No, that is false. You did not create yourself. You did not give yourself life. God gave you your life. So God will set the standard. God will tell you where it is that you can obtain eternal life. In God is where life originates. He is life eternal. And the good news is that through Jesus Christ, we are brought into that life. What is that life? It is the life of fellowship with God. And that is what Jesus is showing his disciples here. That is what he brought them to witness. He is telling them that he is allowing them to witness what he has with his father. And he is going to bring all those who believe in him into that fellowship and glory. Just like when he told them for whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. This is the plan of God that He would draw people into His eternal life. That's why the Father will say, listen to Him. Why? Because just as Peter confesses to Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. And true life is having fellowship with and worshiping God. True life 
is having communion with God. Those who forsake God or refuse to believe in Christ, they are forsaking life, true life. And notice that those without God never truly have life. They are never satisfied. They're just wasting time and wasting away, dying, not just physically, but also spiritually. There's no purpose or goal. That's why we say that they are lost. It is rather depressing, isn't it? Because there is only one place that we can truly have life, and that is in Jesus Christ. And disciples or Christians are those who are described as being in Christ. Paul uses this language of being in Christ over a hundred times. And that doesn't count how much it is mentioned in the other letters of the New Testament. Consider what John says at the end of his first letter to the churches. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He, that is Jesus, is the true God and eternal life. And this life sustains us. Notice, Peter, James, and John did not perish in his presence. Just like when John was on the island of Patmos and he was called upon to witness a vision of God and his kingdom. He describes something similar to what he saw on this mountain. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning... I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. His right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth, came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now listen to his reaction. This is the reaction of a seasoned and mature disciple. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That is a mature disciple who actually walked with Jesus, and though his reaction was that he fell on his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He is saying that he has life and death in his hands. And his disciples, those who believe and trust in him, will experience life everlasting in his presence. 
Just like Moses and Elijah here. With new bodies. God gave us life in the beginning of his creation. And now at the beginning of the new creation, Jesus gives us life. This is why we believe life is important. The body and the life of the body are important. This life and how we live is important. Because the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit where God's glory dwells. That is why Paul calls the Corinthians to flee from sexual immorality because you are sinning against your own body. And one day, we will be raised to take on a heavenly body. A body that has been fit for heaven, which will remain incorruptible. Imagine that. We will be raised to newness of life as Paul describes. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed like Jesus was changed before them in the transfiguration. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. This is what Jesus was showing his disciples when he revealed his life-giving glory. Just as he has been changed or transfigured, when we see him, we will be like him in glory. And we have this promise from him to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. What a wonderful promise. Christians, are you holding on to that promise? Are you holding on to that promise? In the face of death, in the face of calamity all around us, are you holding on to that promise? That because he lives, we also will live. In our world today, we need that promise. Because we are surrounded by death. We are surrounded by illness. We are surrounded by war. And the hatred of men. So secondly... We see this fellowship within God, the Holy Trinity here. And in that fellowship, there's not only life, but also love. There's an unceasing communication of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is one of the most important questions about God that we can ask. If God needs no one to exist, if God depends on no one for any of his attributes to be true, And if we say that God is love, as John says, then who was God loving before creation? 
If we say he needed to create man in order to love someone, then he cannot be God. God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anyone. He doesn't need any of us for any of his attributes to be true. He doesn't need us for us to say God is love. So who is he loving before the creation? God is love because there is eternal love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is why the voice of God the Father came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved Son. Beloved or well-loved or perfectly loved. He has never said this about anyone else in the history of mankind. Jesus is the only beloved and begotten Son of God. Begotten, not made, as our Nicene Creed says. St. Augustine describes the Holy Spirit to be the communion and love between Father and Son. And that love is poured into us as we are brought into this communion. That's why when Jesus spoke of the promise of the Holy Spirit, He says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we, the Father and the Son, will come to him and make our home with him. How? Through the Holy Spirit. This is why we were created to love. We were created to love God and to love neighbor. Because we were made in his image to love. God is love. And love is not passive, it is active. Uh, love is an action. It is not just to sit back and relax and become inactive, leaving everyone alone to mind their own business. That is how love is described these days. But no, that's not love. And love is not just emotions or feelings. In the beginning, after God created all things, He created man to love His creation, to care for it, and to expand it. And then He created woman, and man was called to love and to serve the woman. He created woman so that the man would know how to love as God loves. That is why marriage between a man and a woman is an analogy of how Christ Loves his church. We were created to love because God is love. But how far we have fallen from that love. Any one of us would know how we do not love the way God loves. But here Jesus brought his disciples to see the love of God. He brought them up there to see how much God loves him. He loves Jesus perfectly. And he calls us, much like he called his disciples, to see and experience that love one day. He brought them up there to see the love of God for his son as a gospel proclamation. Jesus is calling his disciples and all of us into that love, into the love that exists within the Holy Trinity. This is what we were created for. To not only love, but to be loved by God. As John writes, in this, 
the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live, there it is again, life, so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to take our place for our sins. For God so loved the world, not that the world loved God, the world hates God, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What a mystery indeed. The mystery of God's grace. He loves us as much as he loves his son. Perfectly. Imagine that. God the Father loves us as much as he loves his son. Perfectly. The son deserves his love. We don't. And yet he loves us in that way. The father was saying on that mount that this is the one that we are to be united to and to be joined with. This is the one who we will listen to. Because out of his his love, he sent his son to take away what separates us from God. And that is sin. So that one day we will live with him eternally in love. And he decided this before the creation of the world. Also something else that we fail to understand. Is what we were made for. What is the purpose of God creating us? What is the purpose of my life? You hear that oftentimes, Especially you know from pessimistic atheists. They often say that life has no purpose. We were just blobs and we evolved into lower species and evolved into what we are now. You know that is the argument, the base argument for racism. Is that we evolved into monkeys and and people of certain races never evolved out of it. But that's a lie. When we ask, what is the purpose of my life? That question and answer is found in our uh, shorter catechism. It, it is the most famous question because it is the first question. It's probably the only question that many of us know. And it asks this. What is the chief end of man? To translate, what is the purpose of my life? And because we are reformed, we can answer that one pretty quickly. It is to glorify God. But that is just the first part of the answer. The second is, and to enjoy him forever. Through the transfiguration, Jesus is calling all of his disciples from the past, present, and future to this enjoyment. He is calling them into his eternal love. He was revealing his eternal love that God shares in himself and that he shares with his people. God shares his love with us. How gracious is our God 
He doesn't have to do that. He's not obligated to do that. But out of His grace, He does. Because love never ends. For now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. One day, when we see true love face to face in the face of Jesus Christ, we will live, we will see God and live in love eternally. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Because faith and hope will be completed in God's love for us. Now, And when we see him, and forevermore. Amen.